for the love of goats. We are talking about everything goat. Whether you're a goat owner, a breeder, or just a fan of these wonderful creatures, we've got you covered. And now, here's Deborah Neiman. Everyone and welcome to today's episode. This is an episode that I'm very excited to bring to you because I get a lot of questions from people on social media and in messages and stuff and in my courses that make it pretty obvious that they're not real clear on what the placenta does as well as how they should handle the placenta after the kids are born. And so today we are joined by Dr. Jamie Stewart. She's an assistant professor at the Virginia Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine. Welcome back to the show today, Dr. Stewart. Thank you for having me again. This is going to be really fun today because we're going to talk about some stuff that people don't really think about much until they're worried. (laughs) I know sometimes I've gotten emails from people or questions from people talking about a birth and, and really panicking once the water breaks. And I honestly don't know what the connection is with them, but they worry that once the water breaks that the kid is going to drown or suffocate or something. And like, they've got to get the kid out as quickly as possible because they don't realize the role that the placenta plays in getting oxygen to that kid. And so let's just start with a very basics on the placenta and what it does for the kids. There's one placenta feeding all the kids in there. Just tell us what it does in a goat or other ruminant. Yeah. And if anybody's ever looked at the placenta after it's come out, they'll notice that there's a bunch of little, um, they should be pink to red bumps that are on there. And so those are the placentomes. The placentome is made up of two different sides. So the caruncle, which is the side that stays in the female, and the cotyledon, which is the fetal side that we would see coming out. And all of that together makes up the placentome. And where those are, and that's where the fetal side directly connects to the mom's side. So through those little placentome units that form in there during early pregnancy, that's where all the nutrients and all the oxygen and everything from the mom that is sustaining that fetus and letting it grow. That's how it gets transferred is through those little uh, placentomes, or I guess you're seeing cotyledons on the outside, but through that whole unit. So that's where all of that's coming from. It's very important and they'll grow in size throughout pregnancy to help with sustaining that pregnancy. And so you'll see them of differing sizes, but most of the time, depending on the size of your goat, you know, they'll be anywhere from the size of a half dollar to a little bit bigger than that. They're not very big in the in the goats, but um, you'll see some varying sizes of them and that's normal. Yeah. And also the number of the cotyledons. In my book, actually, I quoted a vet textbook that says there's, I think, 70 to 140 cotyledons on a placenta. And it never occurred to me. And I kind of thought, oh, I guess 70 on a Nigerian and 140 in a big goat. But I've counted mine before and they usually it's, it's less. It's like around 50 or so. Um, so if you see a little less, that's not a big deal either, but it's very different. Like different mammals have different kinds of placentas and they also work differently. So it's very different from a human placenta, which just looks like a big piece of liver. <laughs> so how does the ruminant placenta function differently than say like a human placenta or a horse placenta? That's a really good question. And that actually feeds back into why we're so worried about getting colostrum into our small ruminants versus humans where we don't worry too much about it. And so in humans, there's actually only pretty much two layers between the fetal blood 
supply and the mom's blood supply. So the fetal blood supply is almost in direct contact with the mom's blood supply. So all of the antibodies that the mom gets throughout pregnancy and everything that she's exposed to in the human is going to directly transfer to that fetus. And that's why things like maternal alcohol syndrome is such a big deal in humans because there's such close contact to those blood supplies. Um, whereas if we go to the ruminant, the horse, most of our domestic species on the farm animal side, they have about six layers between the fetal side and the maternal side. And so there's a lot of layers that antibodies and nutrients and everything have to get through. So we don't get a lot of antibody transfer that goes directly from the mom to the fetus. And that's why when they're delivered, they don't have a massive supply of antibodies like human babies do. And so that's why it's so important to get good quality colostrum into them because that's how they get that original influx of antibodies that they need to protect themselves until they start creating their own. But then even within the ruminants, there are some differences between them, even though they have the same number of layers where I talked about all those little placentome units that form within the fetus of our ruminants, including our goats, um, the horses, they don't have all of those. So everything is in direct contact. So if you ever see a mare placenta, they don't have all those little buttons. It's just basically every single inch besides a few areas that don't have any attachment layers. Essentially, the entire uterus is attached from the female to the baby. So they have a lot greater surface area for transfer of oxygen and nutrients than our ruminants where they're just attached at those specific sites. And I guess where that comes into interest is um, when we think about different things that cause infection, things that we're going to be looking at when they're passing the placenta and when we get concerned about the placenta passing, which I think we're going to cover throughout here today. Yeah. So let's go ahead and talk about after the kids are born, the placenta is going to come out in two to four hours. And in fact, it's not even considered retained according to goat medicine until it's after 12 hours. So can you talk a little bit about the whole process of the placenta coming out and how that works? Yeah. So compared to the horse, because the placenta is only attached at those certain sites, it is very, very tightly adhered. So that's why um, if you ever talk to a veterinarian and you're worried about that placenta that's still in there and you want to tug on it to try to get it out, don't do that. That's actually going to make things worse, especially if you're going to try to breed them back in the future because it can cause some damage. Because not only does she need to expel that placenta, but she needs to go through a whole cascade of immune factors and anti-protein factors. So what we call proteolytic or things that lice all those proteins in there. All these factors need to start getting released too. So if you think of it, they're all attached like this and we need something that's going to come in and loosen those attachments. And once they're loose, then she'll continue to have some of those uterine contractions and it'll force that apart and force it out when it's ready. Whereas if we're sitting there pulling it, we can cause some damage to that uterine side where it's attached to. So we want to be very careful about that. And certainly when we have things like dystocia or if we've had to induce them for whatever reason, they tend to be at an increased risk for getting the retained placenta where it's in for greater than 12 hours. And even, even during those periods, we don't go and try to physically remove it. We were talking about this before the show that a lot of people with goats are horse owners that have kind of converted over. So, you know, you know, in the horse that you need to get that placenta out of the uterus as soon as possible. But in the goats, they're not quite as sensitive. So they don't seem to develop 
severe systemic infections as quickly as in the horse. But also the horse doesn't have a lot of that really tightly adhered areas like the goats do when you're trying to remove it. So you can be a little more aggressive with the horses than with any of our ruminant species. So a lot of time, even if they are retained, we kind of let it sit in there because it's going to start naturally breaking it down um, over time. And then we can lightly pull on it to see if it's coming out, especially if she's you know, a couple of days out, then she's not going to have those nice uterine contractions to push it out. So we can kind of check it each day. But then we also want to make sure that we're checking rectal temperatures, appetite, things like that to make sure that she's eating and not getting a temperature because she will be at risk then for developing ametritis, which is just the fancy word for a uterine infection. Yeah, exactly. So like we're at around 750 kids born and around 250 lambs. And I've had like one retained placenta in a sheep and three in a goat. So that's like one out of about 250. So not terribly common, but it does happen. And they all kind of, well, the first two really played out differently because the first one was with a U and the vet, I called the local vet and she said, oh, come over. I'll give you a shot of oxytocin. You can give her. So I went and I got it and I gave her the shot of oxytocin and she passed the placenta a week later. And the vet said, you know, well, just give her a shot of penicillin every day until she passes it when nothing happened from the shot of oxytocin. The first time I had a goat with a retained placenta, it was a different vet, knew a little bit more and said, oxytocin is very short acting. I'll give you four syringes, (laughs) give her an injection every 30 minutes um, and that should get it to come out. So I did and nothing happened. And, you know, then she said, you know, you can just watch her for signs of infection. So I was checking her temperature regularly, watching her. And in that case, the placenta passed like two or three days later, she did not get any kind of an infection or anything. Everything was good. And at that point too, because like in both of the, the first and second case, I called the university when nothing happened after the oxytocin injections. And whoever I talked to said, yeah, that doesn't usually work. Just make sure she doesn't, you know, show signs of infection. So I was like, okay. So by by the time it happened the third time, I was like, I got this. I'm just going to watch her for signs of infection. Nothing happened. She passed it after two or three days. The fourth time I went out there like on day two and the kids were running around screaming. The doe was laying in the corner. She's like, I don't want to eat, get these kids away from me. And I was like, oh my gosh, I took her temperature. She had a temperature. So I started treating her at that point for an infection and the placenta passed like about four days later and she was totally fine. And like, I guess those are like four different possibilities of how it can play out. But really the bottom line is kind of what you said about just watching and making sure that they don't get an infection. And if they do to treat them for the infection, is there anything else that people should know about how that can play out? It's just like you described it. They all seem to respond differently. So it's just, it's monitoring the individual animal because some do just fine and they'll pass it a week later without, you know, so much as breaking a sweat. And some of them, you know, it'll be two days later and they'll suddenly, you know, have a 105 fever and, you know, you need to do something. And so it's just monitoring because the individual animal 
variation is quite big. And the oxytocin thing, the closer you are to when they gave birth, the more likely that that's going to have some effect. But as I was talking about, the oxytocin doesn't do anything to break those adhesions between there. All it does is it promotes the pushing motion from the uterus. So if for whatever reason they didn't get the whole cascade to break apart those adhesions, the oxytocin itself is not going to do anything. So you just have to give it some time to let those down. So if you've had it where the oxytocin has worked, it's usually probably a nice little tug on the placenta would have helped to have it come out of the uterus also. Okay. So are you saying that in that case you should pull on it or no? Just a light tug. Again, if you just kind of reach up there and you just give it a, like a little light tug and it comes out really easily, then those are okay. If you have to do anything more than just a little like, you know, like you're shaking hands with a toddler kind of tug. <laughs> if you have to do anything more than that, then definitely leave it alone. Okay. One of the other really great tips I got from one of the vets I talked to when I called U of I was that if it's retained, she said like, you know, if you've got a plastic newspaper sleeve, because it's going to be hanging out and the dough is probably going to be dragging it behind her. And if it's fly season, the flies are just going to be going crazy and, and laying eggs and all kinds of things you don't want. So if you've got any kind of a long piece of plastic that you can put that placenta in and then tie it in a knot so that it's not going to attract flies. Are there any other little tips like that that people should know? Yeah, I mean, the whole putting it in the knot too is really good because that knot like creates a little bit of tension there. So again, if, you know, she's not having those nice little uterine contractions, that'll be enough to like help it kind of fall out. So I do like that. And some people will talk about giving things like lutealice or estromate, but the receptors for those specific things are not present at this time because she just gave birth. So all the receptors have gone away. So really, you're just kind of wasting some drug by giving that. It's not going to hurt anything, but it's just not going to really do anything. So yeah, really, it's just checking her. And again, you can check by just kind of either doing the knot or you can do the little light tug. And if it's coming, great. If it's not, then leave it alone. If she is getting sick, I really would recommend calling a vet because sometimes what happens is if they get just a ton of fluid in there with the metritis, Sometimes it'll help to be able to lavage some of that fluid out, but I'd really recommend letting a vet do it because the uterus of the goat is really thin and they're very prone to rupturing their uterus. So it's not something I would recommend just doing at home, especially if you're not, you know, well seasoned with anything like that. So those are different things that your vet could help you with too. One of the things we talked about before we started recording was a goat that I had who kitted about four or five years ago, and she had four kids, one was born dead. And then when the placenta came out, some of the cotyledons were gray instead of that lovely dark purple, you know, red, pink color that you normally see. And I assumed like, oh, that's where the dead kid must have been attached because like that is not normal. So the kid was like not getting the nutrients and everything and the oxygen that he needed us to continue living. What causes that? So there can be different things that cause it. So in a situation like that, when she started into labor, that one probably detached the soonest. And so the baby probably just wasn't getting a whole lot of oxygen from the get go. And if he was in the back of the line, then it was just 
you know, too long before anything happened. And that seems to be more common with when you have, you know, three or four babies that something like that could happen because there's just so many attachments in there. And if that's the side that starts to detach first and that baby's last in line, then um, that could be an issue. Other things that could cause it. And we talked about this a little bit at one of the other podcasts I was in, especially with abortions is you can have something called a placentitis where that's just inflammation of the placenta. So we hear about it a lot more in mares because, you know, we diagnose it a lot more in them during labor and treat it a lot more because it's very common in them because of their um, placentation type. And it's not really something we can easily diagnose before they give birth in the ruminants because of how their placentation is. So in one like that, you know, you you might have had some placentitis in those sides and it can be caused from anything like an infection. It could be if she's come into contact with any abortifacients, any of those things that we talked about in the previous podcast that would cause abortion. So chlamydia, campylobacter, usually with some like those, you'll see it kind of disseminated throughout. So if you have really weak glamour kids that are born, if you have, you know, stillborns, Definitely take a look at the placenta and always wear gloves because a lot of those are zoonotica. Always got to put that plug in. But especially if you think that the cotyledons, which are usually a nice pink to red color, if they look yellowish to grayish, then you definitely want to be concerned and definitely save it. Put it in a bag. If you have any stillborns, put that in a bag too. Put it in the fridge and call your vet because um, if you end up having problems, then you probably want to submit those to try to get a diagnosis. And keeping that placenta is really important for getting those kind of diagnostics done. Yeah, I remember I went to a ADGA conference back in 2011, and there was a pathologist there who said that he tells his students, placenta, 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 to drill into them the importance of getting the placenta before doing a necropsy on stillborn kids, because the answer is frequently in the placenta. Mm -hmm. So in the case of like the discolored cotyledons, if the whole placenta was stinky, is that more likely to be an infection than just a premature separation? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> okay. Cause it was stinky. I mean, normally I let my does eat their placentas, but I was there when it passed. I'm like, Oh my God, you are not eating this. And I picked it up and put it in a plastic bag. <laughs> and that could also depend when the separation occurred. So it could occur and then it could become infected in there because it separated. And that's a beautiful site for clostridium to produce especially when there's no air, you know, no oxygen in that area. So it doesn't necessarily mean that had to, you know, it's a what came first, the chicken or the egg there, did it detach and then, you know, some clostridial overgrowth happen? Or did she get some kind of infection that traveled down there and only infected that one side? It's hard to know, you know, without doing a culture or something on that tissue. But I would say, yeah, like there's definitely some kind of infection in there, but I wouldn't be super concerned that it was the cause. Yeah, exactly. And I know I'm always telling people, if you really want to know why you have a dead goat, you need to get a necropsy because otherwise we're just all guessing. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I was thinking of is, you know, people ask about how many placentas should be passed. You know, everybody always expects multiple placentas per baby. And the the truth is there's actually different parts of the placenta. So you've got the entire placenta 
that kind of makes up, you know, the entirety of the uterus. And then there's the amnion that covers the baby. And so the amnion usually breaks as the baby's coming out. And those are what we think of like as the sacs. And you can see multiples of those. And it's going to depend on how the pregnancy went along. You don't always have to have multiple placentas pass per baby. If it was, you know, twins because an egg split, that's all going to be in one placenta. So it's it's common to know because I, I hear this question a lot of people wanting to know, you know, I waited for another placenta to pass and it never did. Well, that's because she only had the one to pass. So don't freak out too much about the numbers that pass out or sometimes if it breaks and you know, it passes out in different pieces. So that part I don't worry too much about because that can vary quite a bit. Yeah. I've never seen more than one placenta. And we just had a goat that had six last week. And, you know, like she had six kids and then a placenta came out a couple hours later. She was very efficient with the whole thing. And then somebody recently contacted me and said she thought her goat had had two placentas. And I'm like, Oh, do you have a picture? Because my theory has always been that the placenta tears. And she's like, yeah, I took pictures. And so she sent me pictures and I was counting the Nigerian dwarfs and I'm counting the cotyledons. And each piece had about 25 cotyledons. And I'm like, okay, I usually count around 50 cotyledons on my Nigerian dwarf placentas. So there's a total of 50 here between these two pieces that you have. I mean, and it does look like two, but the number of cotyledons is what I would expect to find in a single placenta. Mm -hmm. So the big thing I think sometimes is that people freak out, like they're like, well, the placenta passed. And especially this is with new people. Um, If they've never seen a goat give birth before, I've seen people freak out thinking like, oh, there's another kid. And it's like, well, did she pass the placenta? (laughs) If she passed the placenta, she's probably done. Because that's usually the last thing that comes out and it comes out so much later, you know, like two to four hours after the last kid is born. I guess one of the other things that we talked about was regarding during the kidding process, we talked about how that placenta is the major source of oxygen for those kids. And there's so many people that as soon as, you know, that water breaks, which the water is just the beginning of that placenta coming out and it breaks and all that fluids there and it lubricates the track so that the baby can come out. And during that time, the placenta is still attached to the uterus. So all of those little buttons are still tightly adhered and the fetus still has its umbilicus attached to that placenta. So the fetus is still getting oxygen from the placenta at that point. And that's why the placenta doesn't detach until after the fetus is delivered. So once that water breaks, there doesn't need to be a huge hurry. We always say the rule of 30 minutes. So every 30 minutes, something new should be happening. That doesn't mean that the baby is on the ground in 30 minutes. If it is, that's great. And usually in older animals, that is the case. But, you know, if it's a younger animal, it might be a little bit longer. But in 30 minutes, you know, you should see at least the baby starting to come out. And then 30 minutes after that, maybe you see like the head and feet are coming out. Um, And at that point, if you know, if you're around, you can help to pull it out. But you actually don't want to go in too early right after the water breaks to try to pull it out, because especially in a young female, she needs time to let her reproductive tract stretch so that that baby can come out more easily. Or by trying to go in and pull things out too easily, she hasn't had the time to let her tract completely open up. So don't get too, too freaked out because the baby is still getting oxygen. The one time that we do say 
to work a little bit quickly is if the baby's coming backwards and you have to pull it backwards. So if you see those back feet coming out, you know, and you see the back feet and the butt coming out, I would absolutely run in and grab it and pull it. Because from that point, as soon as that baby is up in the pelvis, that umbilicus gets compressed in the pelvis. And now its head is on the inside of the female. And those are usually pretty easy because you just grab them by the back legs and you just pull it out. And those usually come out pretty easily. And so those are the ones that I would say work a little bit more quickly on um, just because of the way it works. But when they're coming out head first, that's the natural way of it coming. So the head comes out as the umbilicus is compressing into that pelvis. And so, you know, as the baby's head comes out, it starts getting exposed to oxygen. And usually by the time, you know, it hits the ground, like it gets that kind of thump and stimulation to start breathing. Yeah. I remember when we had our very first C-section, the goat started pushing around five or six o'clock in the morning and it was obvious things were not happening. And I called the university and talked to one of the professors there for a bit and waited a little longer and finally went in. It's a two hour drive for us. And she had four kids and three of them were delivered live by C-section six hours after she started pushing. And the other one had clearly been dead for quite some time. And was actually the one in the cervix gumming up the works and slowing everything down. And I remember the surgeon who did did the C-section said, you're so lucky this isn't a horse. (laughs) Because once the goat does start pushing, that starts a timer in terms of like when the placenta is going to separate. But it's a lot longer with a goat than it is with a horse. I've had three C-sections and every time I went in, they said to me, you're so lucky this isn't a horse. (laughs) So it gives me the feeling that horses are a lot more delicate when it comes to the whole birthing situation. Yeah, you have about 30 minutes in horses to get that full out before it's severely compromised, like its life is severely compromised. So we definitely have the luxury of a lot more time with our ruminant species. Wow. No wonder horse people panic so quickly (laughs) because with horses, there's reason to panic, but yeah, with goats, you really do have a lot of time and that, you know, it's funny that like our first C-section was the thing that made me just completely chill. Like, Oh, she's having trouble. Okay. Let me think about this rather than feeling all panicky. Like, Oh my gosh, I have to do something right this second. And, and it's like this one person um, said once at an AGA conference, she's like, as long as the kid is inside, everything's fine. It's getting everything it needs from the placenta. So just relax, you know, call the vet, chat with them, call your mentor, chat with them. You know, you've got time to think about what to do if you think something is not going the way that it should. There's nothing urgent, you know, with the goat. So is there anything else that people need to know about goat placentas in particular, how that might be different from any other animals they may have had experience with? I mean, the big thing, especially, you know, with a lot of horse people that have migrated over to having goats also is just, you don't have to be quite as concerned when it's retained. You don't have to be quite as concerned about the timing for the baby to come out. So it's kind of in general, any of our ruminant species, you've got a little bit of time to work with it. You know, we don't routinely talk about evaluating the goat placenta, but I think it's useful to at least, you know, look at it and look at some normal ones, because then if you have a kid that comes out dead, you know, like what you did, you notice that there was a whole area of uh, cotyledons that looked abnormal. You know, you can always snap a picture of it and take it to your vet. And again, put it in a bag and put it in the fridge and 
you know, if it ends up being a problem, then you have that information to, you know, at least do a culture, you know, do some kind of test, you know, give you time to talk with your vet about it. So I think those are the big things. And, and again, I'll mention it again, always wear gloves when you're handling the placenta, especially if you're suspecting that there might be something wrong with it. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good tip to always wear gloves and do not do mouth to mouth on a baby goat that was just born. Like we talked about that last time. If you don't know why, go listen to the episode that uh, Dr. Stewart did on infectious causes of abortion in goats, because some of them are zoonotic and you don't want any of those diseases. Many of them are zoonotic. Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that this really helps people a lot in terms of relaxing, especially our horse owners who are new to goats. And that's it for today's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss any episodes. To see show notes, you can always visit ForTheLoveOfGoats.com. And you can follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Podcast. See you again next time. Bye for now.